from I think they're right about that as well. And today's passage is actually about this topic. So it's a very, very practical passage. It's talking about um, how to be a consistent Christian. If you say you believe these things, then what does the consistent life that matches up with believing these things actually look like? So last week, um, last week, Dan gave us the bad news, the bad news that we have this sin problem with God, and there's nothing we can do that's going to deal with it. And he also gave us the good news that as Christians, we don't need to deal with it because Jesus has dealt with it once for all. And the passage we're looking at today, it starts with a summary of the long argument that's in this book we're reading. There's a long argument leading up to here, and this is just a summary of the argument of the last chapters about the good news. And it's using as a picture the way the Jews um, were taught to worship God. So in the Old Testament, it's used as a picture to explain things. So let's see if we can follow the argument, okay? We'll take it in bits, and um, we'll, we'll see if we can make sense of it. So let's read um, verses 19 and 21 first, okay? Um, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain. That is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, I'm going to stop right there. The most holy place. What's this most holy place? Um, well, Jews worship God in a temple, a portable one to begin with, and then a big solid stone one afterwards. And the temple had these different sort of areas and spaces. It had like outer bits where anyone whatsoever could come. And then it had like a next inner bit where if you were a Jew, you could come into this inner bit. But right in the very, very, very middle of the temple, in the most holy and most precious place, there was this curtained off area um, around the, the Ark of God. And only one person was allowed to go in there. And only one time a year. And only after they'd followed all these sort of special rituals. Now, why are all these fences and keep out signs around the center of God? Isn't a God a God who wants to be with people? Why is there all this separation? Well, separation is this story of everyone since the very beginning. Since things went wrong in the garden where our first parents, they lived with God. They didn't have this separation until they disobeyed. Now, because of their disobedience, and because like them, we too are people who do wrong things, well, we've got this separation from a perfect and holy God, but then the text tells us things have changed. Things have changed dramatically. We can now go into this innermost place and be with God. This separation is over. And and how is it done? Well, it's done like the text says. Separation is ended through the blood of Jesus. And where does the blood of Jesus come into Jesus' story? It's the blood that he shed when he was dying on the cross. It's the blood that he shed while he was dying in our place. It's the blood which doesn't just kind of balance the books for our sins. It's the blood that washes them away all together and makes a way for us back into this relationship with God. It's the ending of the separation that started with Adam and Eve. So it makes complete sense, this picture of the temple with a separate area that you can't go into the middle. And then there's a way through the curtain. Separation's finished, okay? So what's that got to do with the consistency where we started? Well... The writer is summarizing his argument and he's summarizing it as something that should evoke a response. Look at what he says. He says, therefore, since we've got this, since we've got that, what's coming next? Well, therefore, since these things are true, the corollary action, the thing that you should be doing as a result is going to go for the jugular. Uh, if, we, if we grasp and if we accept these truths about the separation is ended, about Jesus has made a way for us to be with God, if we accept that, then there are ways in which we should behave if we're consistent, okay? If we don't want to be these bad badminton players. So let's pick up the text again and see um, the ways the writer thinks we should respond. Um, What does it look like to live consistently with having grasped this truth of relationship? So in verse 22, he gives us the first thing. He says, let us draw near to God. 
with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us draw near to God. So we're to draw near to God, right? Well, the first question we have to ask ourselves about this is, what does it actually mean to draw near to God? I mean, it sounds like a very reasonable thing to do, right? The relationship's restored, the separation's ended, so we just need to draw near. matches with the illustration of the temple. There's a distance thing going on, but practically, what does it mean for us to draw near to God? Obviously, it's not a, it's not a geographic thing, is it? Um, it's not nearness in place. Our kids would tell us God is everywhere, so there's not a place that's nearer to God and there's in a place that's further from God. You can't go somewhere to get away from him. And uh, you can't go somewhere to get nearer. So what does it mean to draw near? If it's not about place, if it's not about the horizontal or the vertical dimension, what does it mean? It means drawing near in the relational dimension. Ooh, another dimension. Another dimension sounds like an exciting and cool thing, doesn't it? But, uh, well, how do you talk about friends? You have close friends, right? That sounds good. You're having a bad day. Um, you spill your coffee on your wife's lap. What's happened? Well, you're distant from each other. So this notion of relational distance, right, it's something we use. And that's what he's getting at here. What's the first response to a restored relationship with God? It's drawing near. It's closing the relational distance. Okay. But how do we actually do this? Well, there there are two hints hidden in the text. So first, um, it's something active rather than something passive. Okay. It says, draw near, not Sit back, chill out, and God will draw near to you. It says draw near, so it's something for us to do. Um, but also, it's continuous, it's ongoing. It's not like a, a, a one-time thing. You don't draw near to God and then you're near and it's done. The, the, the underlying language makes it clear. It's a continuous thing, it's an ongoing thing. We're always meant to be trying and keeping, trying to draw near to God. But can we get any further on how to actually do it? Okay, so it's relational distance that should be reduced should be reduced because of what we believe. It's the relational distance that should be reduced by our actions and in an ongoing way. Well, ask yourself, what do you do if you're trying to draw closer in a human relationship? Starters for ten. Well, men, revelation, conversation. (laughs) You can talk to people if you want to draw closer to them. I mean, imagine that, but... What does conversation look like with God? Well, one-to-one conversation is quite easy to imagine, really, right? One-to-one conversation, prayer. That's what prayer is. It's one-to-one conversation with God, or at least that's what prayer is supposed to be. Now, prayer is an area where I really don't feel like I should be one to be teaching you. It's an area where I feel like I have got so much growing to do. I'm a complete amateur. But there are a few things I do know about prayer, and I can tell you about prayer. And one is... It's really easy to have prayer turn into reciting magic words, isn't it? Like to feel like I really ought to pray, and so I'm going to. And what do I do when I pray? I'm going to say the things I always say. I've got my shopping list of things I like to pray for. So I'm going to read out my shopping list to God and see how that goes. But imagine transporting this into the world of human relationships, okay? I sit down to dinner with my wife. There are candles. It's looking very romantic. And then what do I do? I whip out my scrap of paper and I say the same things to her that I've said every single time we sat down for the last five years. Does that build relationship? That doesn't build relationship. We're looking for conversation. And conversation is where we speak and where we listen, okay? It's where we actually engage with God as a person because he's a person. Now, 
listening to God is a bit of a hairy and a hard topic, so I'm going to dodge that for today. Um, what I'm going to say is a, a, a pointer for you all, okay? We call this, the Bible, the Word of God. So, if you want to hear God's words, then a good place to start is in the Bible. So, if you're thinking about having a conversation with God, then what are we talking about? We're talking about prayer, not shopping lists, but prayer, talking to God, read, reading, hearing from him, a conversation. So, you can try and work on that with me, because I suck at that, and uh, we can all get better. Uh, Another way, thinking about building human relationships, what do you do? You spend time together. Now, how do you spend time together with God? Well, here we are right now. We're doing it. Um, When we come together, we come together to meet with each other. We come together to meet with God as well. We're spending time with with God in his presence. So so, um, we can can spend time together through, through worship, through services. What else? Well, married folk, what did you do in the beginning to build your relationship? Where did you start? You get to know them, right? You have to get to know somebody in order to have a relationship with them. You learn more about them. And how do you learn more about God? Well, preaching, at least I hope so. Preaching is meant to be um, learning and teaching about God. It's part of what it does. Even mine, thanks to the magic work of the Holy Spirit, my preaching can help you learn more about God. Um, But you can also get to know him through reading the Bible, right? It's all about him. And you get to know him through not just reading it, but meditating on it. Now, when I say meditating, who has a red flag? Meditate. Doesn't that mean empty your mind and say, Om? No, it doesn't have to mean that. So, meditating can also mean chew over, think over, dwell on. So, when we read the Bible, right, it's really easy to see it as a task you have to get through. I'm going to read to the end of this chapter, um, particularly some books, even if it kills me when we get to the end of this chapter. But instead, what we can do is take the Bible and chew on it. Read a bit and think, what happened there? What does that tell me about God? Consider. Um, and finally, another way we can get to know someone is through their work. You want to get to know an artist, you look at their paintings. You want to get to know a musician, you listen to their stuff. Want to get to know God? Well, look at his work. Where do you see God's work? All around us, right? The Psalms tell us, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So we can look at the world God has made. And it teaches us things about him. It can teach us lots of things about him when we consider it. Like the other day, I was walking through the park, and I was thinking, isn't it funny that there are so many different kinds of tree? I mean, there could have just been tree. Just one kind of tree everywhere, you know, which makes food. Just one kind of food everywhere. But God didn't make it like that. He made it rich and varied. He made beautiful trees, unnecessarily beautiful trees. He made flowers that you really didn't need them to look nice, but he made them look nice. So just by looking at what God's done, we can learn things about him as well. He's not, um, he's not this simple thing that sometimes we can imagine. So... Um, I want to suggest one more way, okay, in which we can build relationship with God. And it's a way that is very, very scary to do with people. um, But it's a way that really, really works with people, too. What we can do is we can reveal who we actually are. Now, I think so often as people, we're really distant from each other. And we keep ourselves distant because we're afraid. And because we're afraid of what would happen if they really knew who I was. And if you really knew how lousy I was and how often I fail at things, well, wouldn't you reject me? Wouldn't you actually use this truth against me? And there's this fear of kind of being known. And so instead what we do is we we keep each other at a distance. We put on these faces and these shells. And often these are reasonable fears. 
when we're dealing with people. But when we're talking about building a relationship with God, I think we still do the same thing, right? Sometimes we dress ourselves up, we pretend to be somebody else who we're not. We pretend we're like something we're not. That's really, really, that's really stupid, isn't it? I mean, God knows us. Look, Psalm 139 is one of these great places that tells us about this. It says, you have searched me, Lord. And you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. So pretending to be something you're not before God, it's just silly because he knows who we are. But it is something we do. We pretend that we're better than we are, but... We don't need to. And this keeps God at a distance from us. See, he knew who I was when he saved me. It's not some nasty surprise. He's like, oh, I didn't think you were that sort of guy. If you were that sort of guy, I really wouldn't have started this. No, Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and he's dealt with it like we looked at earlier. So we don't need to pretend to be anything different with God. We can just be me and i think the passage has this specifically in mind if you look at verse 22 again what does it say it says let us draw near to god with a sincere um, or a true heart with the full assurance that faith brings now doesn't that sound like drawing near to god as who we really are in truth recognizing in faith that we've been uh, unseparated an invitation to come as we are so then, right, how do we... Sorry, I completely forgot about this. Oh, look. A consistent response. How do we draw near? Um, well, we draw near by talking, um, by spending time with God, um, by learning about him and by coming as who we really are. But there are some important writers on the end of verse 22 as well when we think about drawing near to God. So look at the end of the verse with me. Um, what does it say? It says we're to draw near, having our hearts sprinkled, um, and our bodies washed. Now, the way the original Greek is written, it's clear both of these are preconditions for drawing near the things that are done and finished and before the drawing near takes place. So, what do they mean? What's all this sprinkling and washing and personal hygiene doing here? What does it mean? Well, the word used for sprinkling is pretty rare, um, and it's normally used when you're talking about religious purification. So the same word turns up um, in Psalm 51 in exactly this way. Psalm 51 is a really famous psalm written by King David um, after he is called by the prophet um, Nathan on his adultery with Bathsheba. So he's caught out. He's done something unbelievably wicked. He's got her husband killed so he can snatch her. The prophet says, uh-uh, you can't do that. And David is um, entirely... Um, he's... he's um, entirely recognizing his need of purification. He says, cleanse me with hyssop, or sprinkle me with hyssop, same word. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. So, we're talking about two preconditions, okay, completed precursors. And um, what, what does this cleansing refer to? Well, it's Jesus' purification of us, of course. If you scoot back to verse 14, we're told, by one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So when we put our faith in Jesus, then we immediately come to share in the consequences of his blood. Sin is dealt with, guilt's removed, the sprinkling is done. So, so the drawing here we're talking about is for people who've taken hold of this cleansing from Jesus. 
But why are there two metaphors here? Why is there a second one? And particularly the washing, okay, what's the washing in? Is it washing in blood? That's kind of what you'd expect with all the metaphor we're using, all the temple and sacrifice. But it's not washing in blood, it's washing in pure water. Um, Well, there are two different preconditions referred to. The washing word, again, is very specific and often one that has religious connections. If you combine a religious washing with pure water, what you get is baptism. Baptism is the logical thing to connect this to. And again, I'm going to dodge a hairy topic. I don't have time um, to get into a full discussion of baptism, but briefly, what is it? Baptism is a public confession of faith. It's declaring not just to God that you believe in Jesus, but declaring in front of other people that you believe in Jesus. And it's a, it's a required response. It's something we're meant to do. Jesus tells us uh, in Mark 16:16, 16, 16, he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And if you look in the New Testament, where do the baptisms show up? Really hot on the heels of first coming to faith. Really hot on the heels. So uh, I'm not going to go through examples, but if you've come to believe in Jesus, then there is a next step. And it normally follows really closely. And that next step um, is baptism. Perhaps for somebody here, this is a next step that you're called to do, right? If you've come to believe in Jesus, then you should be thinking about getting baptized. And if you want to find out more, then do talk to one of the leaders here after the service. Remember, it is something that comes hot on the heels of faith. It's not something that is saved for when you're perfect. It's not like some sort of graduation ceremony that you get to when you finish the long course of instruction. Now, in Scripture, it's something that happens quickly. So, right. Going back to where we started, consistency, okay, is drawing near a consistent response. Well, I think so. If we claim we have a relationship, a restored relationship, but then we don't draw near in that relationship, it's like, it's like getting an invitation to Buckingham Palace and thinking, no, I can stay at home, actually. Kind of busy. Or, or like having the door open to the most precious thing you could imagine right in front of you and then just choosing to stay outside. It doesn't make sense, but pressing into relationship with God does make sense. It's the consistent response. If you say you believe your relationships were restored, why aren't you pressing into that relationship? Doing anything else is crazy. Uh, but there are other responses the text gives us as well. There are more ways in which we should act if we're claiming this restored relationship is ours. So let's look at the next one. Let's pick up verse 23. So 23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. So we're to hold on to our hope, uh, as well as drawing near to God in relationship. But what does it mean? What's What's the hope that we're meant to hold on to? Is it the hope that Team GB gets another gold? Or a hope that Christianity is somehow true, perhaps? Or is it a hope that we're happy and that things work out okay? No, it's a hope related to a promise. See, it says um, you should hold on to this hope because he who promised is faithful. Okay, so hold on to this hope. But hope in which promise? Well, it's hope in the promise that those who believe in Jesus will receive eternal life. If you go back to verse 15, verse 15, just above, it says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. John makes it even clearer in 1 John 2.25 he says this is the promise that he made to us eternal life so we're to hold on to this promise this hope of future eternal life and to do so on the basis of the faithfulness of the God who promised it and I think that's actually a very useful reminder because sometimes we can start to think that Christianity is mostly about the here and now 
Of course, we can make the mistake of going all the way to the other extreme and think it's just about the by and by and there's nothing to say here. But the author of Hebrews has got both, right? He says, draw near now, hold on to your future hope. He's got both ends here. And this future aspect of Christianity, it really does matter. Paul, um, one of the earliest leaders in the church, one of the most important writers, he makes this really clear. He's writing to the church in Corinth. He says, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, then we're more to be pitied than anyone in the world. If there isn't this future dimension, the whole thing doesn't work. So I think it's worth asking ourselves, what makes us waver? Why, why does our confidence in this future hope waver? Why, why don't we hold firm? Is it just the pain uh, and the mess the world is in around us? Or, or maybe it's just the constant whispering of the world that this is all there is. That the horizon of stuff uh, and things and now is the lot. Or maybe it's just that life is busy. There's a whirlwind going on around us. and It's so busy that it closes our focus in and in until we're not looking over the horizon. But whatever, when we find ourselves wavering, how do we hold on? Right, what can you practically do to hold on to this hope? Well focus on the one making the promise I mean that's what we do with promises in the world isn't it imagine a shiny politician with a nice accent comes to you promising change confidence low or uh, imagine a used car salesman is trying to sell you his old banger and the dodgy noise from the engine he says nothing to worry about promise confidence low okay but uh, a soot smeared fireman looking all dressed up and uh, saying he promises to get your cat back from the tree. Good confidence, okay? So, character and capability of the one making the promise guide us. Right? What does God's character tell us about whether he intends to keep his promises? Well, Hebrews 6.18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. Sounds a good start. Um, Numbers 23.19 tells us God is not a man that he should lie. You see, God um, is a God of truth, and when he makes a promise, he intends to keep it. So then, the natural question to turn to is, is he able to keep his promise? And what do we know about this? Well, he's the creator um, and the sustainer of all things. He's the one who Genesis tells us, almost as an afterthought, well, he also made the stars. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe, mightier than the thunder of great waters. See, if we believe God is this trustworthy and true God... If we believe God is this mighty and powerful and able God, well, then of course it makes sense. It's consistent to trust God will keep his future promises for those who believe. So humble confidence in God, and it's critical that we hold on to that as we walk out our Christian lives. So we've got drawing near, consistent response. We've got holding on to the hope, consistent response. But there's one more way we're called to respond, and I'm going to call this one... Um, provocative fellowship so let's pick up the text again uh, at verse 24 read this already let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching now I like this idea of spurring on 
And it's a good horsey term. It's kind of ideal for Oxford, isn't it? Lovely. Um, but for the unhorsed among you, and there may be some perhaps, well, spurring is really simple. It consists of sticking spiky objects into your horse in order to make it go faster, right? That's what spurring on is. I'm thinking, aha, this is something I'm going to be able to do. But before things get out of hand at Magdalen Road, um, it's not just needling one another. It is needling one another with a purpose. So it's spurring one another towards two things, okay? Two goals, towards love, and particularly the selfless, self-giving type of love which God has shown to us, and also spurring one another on towards good deeds. Now, good deeds, um, if you're a conservative evangelical, might give you the heebie-jeebies. Um, it's one of those things that we often get jumpy about talking about because well, we believe we're saved by grace, by what God has done, not by works, by the things we do, right? We believe salvation is this gift, not something you earn by building up points on your God card through good deeds. It doesn't work like that. But sometimes our nervousness to make sure we don't mess that one up um, makes us underplay the practical business of how we're to live as Christians and give the impression that really what we do now doesn't matter that much, that God's grace means what we do is irrelevant. But that's not true. Like Paul says, Paul says in Romans 6, he says, shall we go on sinning then that this grace may increase? By no means. We're those who died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? See, it's only consistent to respond to this love of God with good deeds. It's a response, not the cause of the love, but it is a right response. It is something that belongs there. So we're spurring on towards love, okay, and towards good deeds. And where are we meant to do this? We're meant to do it as we meet together, the thing we're not meant to give up doing. That's where we spur on. It's where we encourage and exhort each other. When we meet together as a church, see, we're busy worshipping God. We're busy being in his presence. We're busy listening to him and hearing about him. Yep. But we're also busy spurring one another on. That's what we're meant to be doing. Now, I have to confess that coffee time, coffee time is not my favorite part of our meeting together. And it's nothing to do with the coffee um, or the biscuits or the wonderful service there. It's just that really I'm not a natural casual chatter. Casual chat does not fill me with delight. It fills me with terror. Um, But perhaps I need to think again about what coffee time is for. If it's for spurring one another on, then when we meet together, I guess it's going to be happening over coffee, right? It's going to be happening over setup. It's going to be happening in the home groups. It's going to be happening just when we bump bump into each other during the week. Now, notice also how the passage says we're to consider how to spur one another on. We're to think about it. We're to examine and consider tactics and techniques we can use in spurring on our fellow Christians. We're to be creative. We're to persevere in searching out ways that are actually effective at pushing others to love and to good deeds. And again, the force of the language makes it clear this is an ongoing thing. It's not once you don't stab someone the first time they become a Christian and say, sort it out, mate, and you're done. It's again, it's this continuous ongoing thing. So carry on scheming and thinking and experimenting with different ways. And I've been thinking this week, how do we actually go about spurring one another on? I mean, really, with a horse, it does seem pretty straightforward. You poke the spiky object into the side of the horse, and then the horse goes faster. And it seems the signal is automatically understood. There's not any question. It just produces the right results. But people spurring, it's a bit of a different kettle of fish, really. I mean, how do you spur people on, particularly actually towards something? Because I can imagine spurring someone, but not towards anything in particular. I'm just poking them while it's provocative, and it might even be fun. Uh, It really might not achieve the desired results. So some ways I've been thinking about where we can be more effective at spurring one another on. And the first one I was thinking of is we can spur one another on simply through our life example. 
I know sometimes it can actually be depressing rather than inspiring to see an example. When I'm cycling into Oxford and there's some super cyclist whizzes past me, does that inspire me to greater efforts? No, it just leaves me depressed in the puddles. Um, but, 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 sometimes, but sometimes it works the other way. A Christian life well lived can also be inspiring to those around you. And I think sometimes we can be really quite secretive because we're really worried about being proud and advertising ourselves. But don't be so secret that people don't know what you're up to. You're missing an opportunity to be an example and to spur them on. Like my wife, okay, my wife is, she's a natural evangelist. Her nature is to talk about Jesus. It's just what happens. She finds ways for him to crop up in her conversations through the day. She's an example that's inspiring to me, helping me remember how much better I should be at doing that. And perhaps you can be an inspiring example to others as well, in somewhere where you are strong. But that brings me to uh, another way we can work towards spurring each other that's essential for this, and that is knowing each other. How can we possibly spur one another on if we don't know one another? If we don't know what's going on in each other's lives, what challenges we're facing, what opportunities we have, what we're up to. But armed with a better knowledge of each other, we can ask the right questions. Should you really be going there? We can keep each other accountable. Did you do what you said you would? We can't have these conversations if we're not involved in each other's lives. If we're always keeping people at a distance and our conversation is just about the weather and our holidays, and right now obviously the Olympics. But if our conversation is just about that, if we don't get to know each other, well... How can you spur one another on? You can't. Now, hopefully not stretching the metaphor too far, okay, but I think it's also essential in spurring one another on that we're actually sharp enough to have an effect. I mean, can you picture trying to spur a horse on with a spoon? Um, Or with a nice, gentle caress? It just wouldn't work the same way. And I think as Christians, we can be too nice. We can be much too polite and subtle with each other sometimes. More sort of willing each other on to greater exploits than actually spurring each other. But there is a time and a place for being strong as well, particularly once you know someone, you're better armed and more responsible for doing it in a way that has effect. And particularly for those of us who are thick-skinned, I'm going to need more like a machete than a spur to have me change direction. And if you're like me, something we can usefully do is we can tell others to be more pointed towards us. We can seek out people who are really going to speak into our lives and our conduct and let them know just how loud they're going to shout if it's actually going to have any impact on us and change our direction. Well, finally, I think we can spur one another on by expecting more from each other. I think we often just set the bar too low for each other. We have hopes that are several sizes too small, inappropriately low expectations. We're not expecting much. We're not expecting change. We're not expecting people to forcefully pursue the gospel. But I want to say that is not loving towards each other. It's not a graceful accommodation. In the end, it's tolerating mediocrity. It's tolerating stagnation in each other. And instead, I think we should be expecting progress in the gospel. We should be expecting ourselves to be moving on, to becoming more like Jesus. But we should be expecting each other as well. Part of what it is to walk together in community. Not called to be mediocre or called to stagnate, to go somewhere and then stop. Now we're being transformed, the Bible tells us, from one glory into another. The Spirit working in us to shape us, to be more and more like Jesus. So we should have enough love for our neighbours to expect more of them. 
and to give them a poke when they're going off track or when they're just stalling. Spurring one another on then, okay? It's something we can do as we meet together, something we do through our example, um, critically through knowing each other, um, through being sufficiently pointed and through expecting better of each other. That's our responsibility. Back to where we started. Remember the badminton players and how we expect consistency from people? So what I'm saying today is that it's consistent to respond to our restored relationship with God by drawing near, uh, by holding on to this hope and by spurring on. So, so do, so draw near to God. Take steps, active steps to get closer to him. So hold on to your future hope and be confident in his promise. And so spur one another on. Help each other respond consistently in community.